podcast. I'm Deep, and I want to start by sending you all a big virtual hug. Whether you're at home following the stay-at-home orders or out in the world having to do the difficult but necessary jobs, sending you all the love and healing your way. Today, I'm joined by Sehej Kohli, creator of Brown Girl Therapy. I first connected with Sehej through social media when I came upon one of her posts that really resonated with me. It shared the message of seeing therapy as a courageous, healthy, and sometimes absolutely necessary way to achieve mental health and not associating it with shame, which can often be the case within South Asian communities. She also has a great talent in writing and sharing viewpoints on being a first-generation child of an immigrant and minority, as well as a plethora of misunderstandings and emotional struggles in communication, relationships, and expectations that come along with this identity. She really hits the nail right on the head. So, Sahaj, thank you for joining me in conversation today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so I'd love for you to share with our listeners a bit more about yourself and what keeps you busy. Yeah, so I um, am living in DC right now and I am working full time as a senior editor in journalism. Um, and so that takes up most of my days. And then I'm actually a graduate student full time um, and all of my graduate classes are in the evening. So I have a super busy schedule um, and I am also growing Brown Girl Therapy, which is the wellness community on Instagram that I started. Sounds like you have a full plate. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> so I hope these stay-at-home orders have been treating you well. How are things coming along in D.C.? Are there any major changes to your day-to-day? Um, so I actually work from home a lot normally as it is, so that part doesn't feel any different. But now my graduate st- studies are actually all virtual, and that's been quite a rough adjustment, to be honest. Um, my husband's also at home with me, so we've had to kind of learn the steps to this new choreo that, you know, of being home together. So um, that's been really interesting, but I've actually had quite a hard time separating my days from my evenings and then my weekdays from my weekends. Um, But I have to admit that I've been very lucky and privileged. I don't have children right now and I'm able to maintain my job and my income through this and I have a safe space in my apartment. So I'm trying to maintain perspective, but um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a little bit wild that you know, we're being told to stay at home. And I, I realized that I was taking all of the small things for granted, I think, in my day-to-day life. Absolutely. I totally agree with you on the taking little luxuries for granted. Um, it's kind of an adjustment for us as well in that sense. But especially with having a roommate with the husbands, but also at the same time, you're not always together all the time. And now you're together all the time. <laughs> so <Right>. that adjustment, <laughs> for sure. I notice on Uh, social media, of course, how everyone is adjusting to these things and sharing more time with their family, um, adapting and changing their business models as well for stay at home Mm -hmm. orders and taking comfort in baking, which I wish I was a baker (laughs) now after seeing everyone's muffins and cookies (laughs) and the reading that you've been sharing some of the books on um, social media. I feel like I need to pick up some of those. And then live workouts, live meditations, Netflix shows and things like that. Uh, But in all honesty, though, since I am a creature of habits and routine, the first few days, heck, even the first few weeks, I felt like there was so much anxiety. I felt like I was collapsing under that pressure. Oh my goodness. Do I need to be doing something with this downtime? Like, what should I be doing? Should I be doing something productive? But then I quickly 
did my prayers, meditation. I've been doing the 20 days live meditation with Jay Shetty and that has helped me a lot. Yeah. So how are things on your end? How are you coping with the day to day? Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you definitely uh, said it really well. There was definitely this initial like mass reaction on Instagram, especially Instagram has always kind of been my like safe social media space where it felt Mm -hmm. like it was for me, I curated the people I was following in a way that it always just felt really fun to check it um, and to be on it. But there was definitely this initial mass reaction to all this like quote unquote free time that people were seeing. And, and especially in my communities, you know, like you said, there's all these like workouts and these books to read and these recipes to try cooking and write that book and do this thing that you've always wanted to do. And um, it was really overwhelming. I mean, I'm a content creator both just by trade and my work in journalism, but also with Brown Girl Therapy. And I was, I've I've been really struggling to feel productive, if I'm honest. And I've had to kind of remind myself that like, it's okay. I mean, this is a really weird time and we're all, it's, it's unprecedented and we're all trying to figure out what that looks like. And if for some people that means, you know, doing all of the things all at once, then that's great for them. But I think for some of us, um, it's not, it's kind of taking a step away from the things that we would usually want to be doing and just trying to take care of ourselves. And I think right now that's the most important thing is to just be able to take care of ourselves and take care of our loved ones. And that's enough. Right. I totally agree with you on that sense. I, after I saw your post on that, I was just like, Oh, she nailed it again. <laughs> like I totally get it. And it's, it's okay for me to feel that this way. And I, and I want everyone to know that it is okay to feel that way. You know? Definitely. Okay, so obviously I want to talk about Brown Girl Therapy. So what exactly <laughs> is Brown Girl Therapy and how what sparked this passion or idea for you? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because when someone asks me that, I don't really know how to answer it. It <laughs> kind of took um, a life of its own. I initially started it as a passion project. Um, I've been sitting with this idea now for probably a year and a half, November twenty. Uh, 18 I want to say is when I was I first was like oh I this this isn't honestly it came because I've I'm I'm always been a part of the mental health field and um, there's a lot of like therapy for black girls and Latinx therapy and all of these pages that I was finding that I was like wow this is really inspirational and amazing and I kind of relate to some of it but it doesn't directly speak to my unique experiences Mm -hmm. Um, and as someone who now is in graduate school studying to be a therapist I was like I would love to just create a page and content that is a little bit selfish, a little bit of just like, oh, what are my unique experiences being a daughter of Indian immigrants? Um, And then the way it was received kind of blew me away. Um, I imagined having three years, you know, the length of my program to kind of grow the page in the community, but in nine months, it's kind of taken a life of its own. And so um, it's just a safe space for children of immigrants and South Asian women to kind of share our unique struggles. I think Um, initially it started for the South Asian community, but the more I would talk about my own experiences, I realized that a lot of my unique mental health struggles and a lot of my own identity explorative issues that I was having all stemmed from being a child of immigrants. Um, And it's been really humbling and validating to know that my own experiences are really relatable and that there are people in this world that are craving the exact kind of community I've always wanted my whole life. Um, so now as it grows and involves, evolves, I want it to be a place that eventually hosts workshops and kind of takes this community into the real world. Um, I want to create resources that are both accessible, but also like, you know, really speak to our community. Um, and I also want to create resources for other mental health professionals, because now that I'm studying to be a therapist, I realize that a lot of my peers also are not sure 
and don't really understand the implications of really counseling children of immigrants or South Asian, South Asians. I love that. I love that you bring that up because it's not just one-sided for us to see what can be our issues, but also from your therapist's point of view and helping other therapists understand our point of view as well. That's really exactly. cool. Yeah. Awesome. So on the topic of therapy, there's always this stigma that, okay, well, you need therapy, like what's going on in your life? Or how can mm-hmm. someone really benefit from therapy? Like who is therapy for? I mean, I'm a strong believer that therapy is for everyone. Um, therapy can be utilized for anything from dealing and healing from trauma, which I think a lot of people kind of say, oh, if you're going to therapy, then something's wrong with you or something bad happened to you. Or like, you know, there's this extreme thing that you need help with. But I also really think therapy is a a useful tool for anyone who just wants to invest in their personal development. Um, For the South Asian community, especially a therapist is a great way to just learn and build that toolkit for effective communication and relationships, for boundary setting, for navigating identity struggles, um, for pursuing your own goals that may be different from your parents' expectations. Um, so I think, you know, there's something for everyone, but I think the way that we, it's discussed culturally um, and socially, there's still this negative implication towards it. So going back to the term trauma, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about emotional abuse, sexual so, health stuff, or yeah? So I, I think um, when I talked to my parents about when I wanted to seek therapy for the first time almost a decade ago, um, a lot of it was, well, you know, nothing bad happened to you, or your life is so good, or you know, we can help you because we're your parents and we love you, or you look okay. So there's there's this implication that if you want to seek help, then you have to look like something is going on in your life that's bad. Um, And I don't think, I think trauma could be anything from, yeah, something really severe and serious and detrimental like sexual assault or divorce or infertility or all of these things. But I also think that um, trauma can be emotional abuse. It can be generational trauma. So the things that we've been taught our whole lives from our parents because of something they dealt with or their parents dealt with, um, I think there are, a number of things that constitute trauma. And I just, I, I don't think that we have the words yet to discuss it in our own community and the mm-hmm. conversations haven't been started yet. But I think it's really important to understand that not everyone is the same. And so everyone deals with their own life experiences very differently. So something that might not be traumatic to you might have been really traumatic for me. Um, and that that's okay. It's okay if I need to seek therapy for that or to seek outside help or to um, get a better understanding of what it is I'm experiencing by, by a professional. Right. Okay. Now that, that paints a clearer picture for me to understand when someone does refer to trauma. I think it's just the word has been stigmatized so much as well in, in this context because definitely you auto, my brain automatically goes to you know, emotional abuse or physical abuse or, or something along mm-hmm. those lines. And thank you for kind of clearing that up as well. So I kind of want to talk about what uh, an appointment would be like. Okay, so like what would be the first steps if I had decided, for example, that I want to seek therapy, now what? How would, how would I proceed? Yeah, yeah. so um, I mean, for anyone who is considering seeking a therapist, first I want to say kudos to you. I think it is still a very difficult decision to be made, um, especially in our own community. Um, I think the first thing people should consider um, is, is really getting clear on your why. 
Why do you want to go to therapy? What are you hoping to gain from it? Um, if a therapist during the consultation is to ask, you know, what do you, what do you want to gain from this? Or uh, what can I help you with? You need to be clear on what comes to mind. So have these questions answered before reaching out to therapists. It'll help you confidently speak to what your needs are um, and will be that much more helpful in finding a good fit. I also think that it's really important for people to view finding a therapist. And this is, you know, I don't think people see it this way, but I think people should um, view finding a therapist as a contractual agreement. You are literally going to be paying someone to do a job for you the same way you'd pay a graphic designer or a doctor or a plumber. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you're looking for a therapist, you're the one who's in control. And a lot of the times people feel like, oh, well, I'll just find the first therapist who comes to mind. And if that doesn't work, then it just means the whole industry wasn't made for me. But that's not how it works like you it's the same way if you were finding someone who is going to build your website not every graphic designer is going to have the same style or the same vision that you're going to have it's the same with therapy so it's important to understand that you might have to quote unquote date around a little bit um right. it's important it's important to ask the right questions when you do meet with therapists a lot of people don't under, don't realize that therapy appointments vary depending on how the therapist practice or what modality they use so some therapists may be really action oriented and give you homework or things to do outside of the session whereas others will be more quiet and you might someone who talks you might want someone who talks more versus someone who doesn't talk more so um, i think you know getting the most out of your therapy appointment is really as much up to you as it is up to what the therapist's credentials are. And I think that that's, you know, that's one of the problems with the mental health care um, industry in general is that the onus is usually on the person seeking help. And I think that we, there's a lot to be done to make wild changes to make it more accessible. But as of now, I just want people to realize that it may feel daunting, but it absolutely is worth it. And when you find the therapist who can help you or that you feel really comfortable with, um, it's, I really think it's magical. I really do. That's so great. And it's a great analogy to compare this to a graphic designer because it helps me understand more about what I should be looking for and that and that's okay. Um, so I'm wondering how exactly, going back to the question of finding the therapist, mm-hmm. is it how do f- people usually go about this? Do they just go on Google and say, hey, find me a therapist near me? Is it word of mouth? Is it Do I have to go to my primary care physician to get them to write me you know a referral like how can I go about doing this yeah so I think there are a number of ways I think um uh, asking your friends for their referrals is a really really good one because you're likely to trust someone um that you know who can already speak on behalf of someone the same way you would for a specialist doctor you know a specialist physician in some way Mm -hmm. um I think if you have insurance it would be really good to call your insurance policy there's always a number on the back of your card and they can send you a whole list of people who are covered by your insurance which automatically makes it cheaper for you um there are there are definitely websites like open path collective and psychology today that have really great um you know, databases that you can kind of sift through and you can filter through um, the issues you're having, the kind of therapy you want them to practice, gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity. So all of these things that might be important to you. And yeah, so I think I think there are multiple ways. I think if cost is really big, if you don't have insurance and you are still worried about cost, um, you could consider seeing a new therapist or even um, trying to access a clinic, which is part of a graduate program that might be near you because then that cost range will be anywhere from $5 to $40 a session. Okay. So I'm just wondering what 
can someone expect from a typical therapy appointment? Like how long does it last? Am I supposed to just spill my guts and talk about everything that's bothering? Like how can I, what do I expect and how can I prepare for that? Yeah. So a typical anywhere between 45 and 50 minutes. Um, it, I know that's only a five minute difference, but it, it just depends on the therapist themselves. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important to seek out those cons consultations before you actually start seeing a therapist because you want to, these are questions that you want answered, right? So you want to know how will they work with you? Like what is a typical therapy appointment with them look like? Because I can't speak, I can't speak specifically because it really does vary depending on therapist. And if you have a cognitive behavioral therapist or versus a narrative therapist, your appointment may look very different. But I think the first and first and foremost important thing is for you to know what it is that you want out of therapy as a client. What, like, what is it that you are hoping to seek? Is it communication skills? Is it boundary setting? Is it that you got laid off from your job? Is it that you are thinking about divorcing your partner? Like it could be anything, but as long as you can understand what it is that you are seeking help with, it'll be that much easier to find someone who can help you. So it's important to prep for the first appointment in that way. Um, I think I do have a, um, a like how to make the most out of therapy infographic on Brown Girl Therapy. Okay. Um, but yeah, just to break it down for you, I think that, you know, you should definitely show up to your appointment early. You don't want to be stressed out. You have to think that you only get 45 to 50 minutes with this person a week. That's not a lot of time. So you want to make the most of it and you want to come into it with a really clear headspace. Um, even if you don't feel like you have anything to talk about, say in your second or third appointment, you're like, well, what am I going to talk about now? You should still go because because most of the time I find that those are the most powerful appointments because you're no longer prepping for it. Now you're just digging even deeper into the things that you didn't realize were were things that you were struggling with. Right. Um, so that actually leads me to another question I had for you, which was yeah. how long before you know that this is a good fit and how long, how long do usually patients come for? Is it like a lifetime thing or is it a few months, years, or does it depend on what's going on? Like you had mentioned, you know, even if you have resolved an issue when you don't feel like you don't have anything to talk about, that's the best time. So, um, is that something that we can expect that this relationship with or contract should last longer than just a few sessions? Yeah, so I think definitely um, the average, I would say that I've been hearing from my colleagues and my mentors is at least six to eight sessions, at least. Okay. Um, it could be, you know, it could be less than that if you just feel like you needed to talk something out really quickly with someone who was a professional. could be a lot longer if you realize that you are uncovering a lot more that you didn't realize you needed help with. Um, I personally went to therapy on and off for three years with the same therapist. And I did take, I think, eight months off somewhere in between there, but I decided I wanted to go back. And for me, it ended up being a personal development tool. And I was paying, you know, my therapist was in network for me. So I saw it as an investment in my mental health and in my own personal development, the same way you know, someone likes to go shopping or invest in their clothes or invest in their technology. For me, this was something that was very much an investment. So it really is just the way you view it. I think, um, you know, something that I really want to specify for anyone listening is that I know firsthand how white the counseling and mental health space is, both sides, right? I've been in it as someone who's seen a therapist for years um, and a white therapist at that and someone who who is studying to be a minority therapist. So um, I really urge people who are worried about seeing 
a therapist and, and, and thinking, oh, well, this isn't going to be for me because they don't look like me and it's hard to find someone who looks like me, um, to still go. Um, the number one indicator of success in therapy, it's statistically proven, is the relationship between the therapist and the client. It's not anything else. It's not that they look like you. It's not that you have things in common. It's just how you feel in the room with them. So it's really important that when you are you know, doing these consultations, or even if you decide to see a therapist for the first time and then go back the second time and then the third time you leave and you're like, you know what? I don't feel comfortable any, anymore. That's okay. Um, it's really important to listen to yourself because if you don't feel comfortable, you're not going to open up or be as vulnerable as you should be and get the help that you, you know, get, get the help and the professional expertise that you are seeking. Um, so a therapist does not need to look like you to be able to help you. If you really are, um, hesitant and worried about that, then during your consultations, I would advise for you to ask your, ask the therapist, have you ever worked with someone from my background? How do you incorporate multiculturalism into your practice? These are things that will help you kind of weed out anyone that you won't feel comfortable with. Yeah, that's a that's a great tool, actually. And just to understand a little bit more about therapy, I wanted to go back because you're talking and I'm thinking, oh, wait, I want to ask her about that. <laughs> um, I <w> <laughs> Sorry, if you I'm don't mind, <laughs> if you don't mind to explain the difference between cognitive behavioral therapy and maybe what that can be beneficial for and then narrative therapy, like what's the difference here? Sure. So there are tons of different modalities. So when you are seeking out a therapist and let's say, you know, your insurance policy or you go to psychology today and you're like, okay, here are six therapists who take my insurance, who seem good. I looked at their websites. They look like they can um, help me with my specific struggles. Um, but, you know, this one says CBT on the end of, um, you know, in their website, whereas this one says psychoanalysis, um, it's important for you to kind of know what these modalities are. So for example, cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy is a kind of therapy. It's, it's the most researched, um, research-backed kind of therapy, um, but it is action-oriented. So cognitive behavioral therapy is when a therapist will help you kind of tackle and reframe any negative thoughts or any negative behaviors by helping you track those things throughout your day-to-day -day life, by helping you um, kind of, you know, flip the script and the perspective that you're having about something in particular, negative thoughts every day about your weight or, you know, having anger issues or something like that. On the, on the flip side, something like psychoanalysis um, is very Freudian. So it was one of the first therapies. So that kind of therapist in the room might be the more typical kind of therapist that you see on TV. That's like, how does that make you feel? Or let's talk more about your childhood. <laughs> okay. um, or you'll have someone who's a narrative therapist, which is something that I'm really interested in. And that is exactly what it sounds like. It's like narrative st storytelling. So um, as someone who's a storyteller myself, who's worked in journalism, who is a writer, um, I really believe in the stories we tell ourselves and how they, you know, no one is a reliable narr is a reliable storyteller, right? We all have our own perspectives and our own um, biases against what happened to us or what we've experienced in our life. So Very as a narrative true, therapist, yeah. Yeah. So as a narrative therapist, my goal would be to help you kind of understand the story you've told yourself and break down what is and isn't true to, in order to live a better life. Yeah, I can see you doing really well in that field, Sedge, because you're a very Thank good you. writer. In general, Thank though, you. I notice on Brown Girl Therapy, it's like I may have been feeling a certain way and it's not I'm not able to put it into words. And then I see a post on Brown Girl Therapy and I'm like, that's exactly how I was feeling, <laughs> but I didn't know how to put it into words. So you're going to do really well. And I'm so glad that you 
compared those two because I've been wondering, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been wondering as well. Definitely. Right. Thank that's, you for saying that's that. That's so great. Um, so obviously now, since we're facing or navigating through a time where face-to-face can be difficult because we have stay-at-home orders, what mm-hmm. kind of resources or tips can you recommend for our listeners who may be feeling a heightened sense of sadness, anxiety, stress, depression through this sort of major adjustment period? Um, in general, I think if we can name the feeling we're experiencing, it's much easier to deal with that feeling. So sure. if you're feeling if you're feeling anxiety, if you realize, oh, you know what, I'm feeling really anxious right now, then you need to do something that is grounding for yourself, whether that is cooking or um, meditating or doing a grounding exercise of some sort, something that calms you down. If you are feeling depressed and you're like, oh, you know what, I'm feeling really sad and lonely and, and depressive right now, then you should reach out to a friend or a loved one or do something that makes you feel connected to the world again. This is a major transition. And it's like I said, it, it's unprecedented. And I think a lot of us are feeling grief. And I think a lot of people are like, I'm not like, what do I have to grieve? Like, you think of grief in a very specific way, but we are, I think, I think everyone in the world is feeling some level of grief, grief for the things that were taken from us, whether it's a trip or having a parent or dinner with a friend, like these very basic things that have now been taken from us, but also grief for the state of the world right now. So I think it's important to try to stay connected as best as you can um, and to try to navigate your feelings and be able to identify them and then seek out what you need in order to fight that feeling. Um, And of course, overall, just know that you are not alone. Absolutely. And I think that's the one thing that keeps me, I guess, in a healthy space because I'm thinking everyone's going through something right now and it's okay that I'm feeling anxious. And it's interesting that you bring up grief because I never even thought about that for a second that, Hey, maybe I am feeling grief for the little things and the big things um, that this world is kind of going through right now. So that's very interesting. Definitely. And I think, you know, we've all been going through those stages of grief. I can't tell you off the top of my head what they all are, but we, you know, I know I've been going from being in denial, like, okay, one week, like this is going to be fine. Right. Yeah. Like, (laughs) To like anger to like, oh my God, what is wrong with the people still leaving? Like, why is this, you know, better to like bartering? Like, okay, if I can stay in, then in two weeks, we'll all be able to leave again. And it's just like, I think we're all processing these feelings and going through these stages ourselves. And we all, you know, coping isn't a one size fits all. So I think that's also something we should be mindful, like reaching out to our loved ones, making sure they're okay, but also self, you know, community care is self care. So as much as you want to help the people around you that you love, it's also important to kind of be like, hey, you know, this is what I'm feeling. And I think this is what I need to feel better about this from you and and seeking out that support yourself. Absolutely. One of the biggest things that comes to mind for me is, you know, that we all, most of us and most of the listeners probably have Instagram. So Instagram isn't therapy, but there are a lot of therapists on Instagrams who are creating resources and mental health care tips that are practical and accessible. So I really highly recommend looking for those. Some of my favorites are um, Lisa Oliviera, um, Therapy for Women. There's a couple others. I can always send them to you if you want to, if you want to create a little resource. Sure. I think finding those resources online is a really great tool. I highly suggest following them. So I think teletherapy is a great, a great tool. And I know there are tons of therapists who have now fast tracked their way into offering teletherapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's a really great way to get, get that help. And I know, I think now more than ever, it'll probably be easier to find affordable therapy because 
of the state of the world and that there are a lot of mental health professionals who want to offer their services. If you were to seek out teletherapy, I wouldn't want this to be what you assume all therapy is like, if that makes sense. If you need right. the help, definitely seek it out. But if it doesn't work or it's not something that works for you, then I don't want that to discourage you from actually attempting to find a therapist when all of this is over. Okay, that makes sense. And it's a good disclosure. So, so Manmukti's mm-hmm. goal is to destigmatize topics that address South Asian mental health. So mm-hmm. I want to talk to you now about some of the stigmas that surround therapy. We did touch on this a little bit. Um, but what are some that you encounter frequently within the South Asian community? And how can we start breaking those stigmas down? Yeah, so I think the biggest stigma that, that comes to mind um, surrounding therapy for South Asian communities is that I think in a lot of Eastern cultures and communities where collectivism is a big part of the belief system, just like it is in the South Asian community, seeking therapy or outside help can be seen as a failure of some sort, whether mm-hmm. it's you, you failing to help yourself or your parents and community failing to help you. So it's important for us to kind of deconstruct this belief and reconstruct it from a different point of view. Um, Therapy is not shameful. Trying to be the best version of yourself is not shameful or wrong. Um, Seeking support for something that is hard for you is actually okay. Um, Therapy essentially nurtures a person's sense of self-help and self-actualization. So this does not mean you don't care about your community or are selfish, which I think is a really big myth in our community that if you Mm -hmm. seek out that help, then you are, you know, failing your community or parents or, um, you know, you can care about where you come from and the people who love you, but also care enough about yourself to seek out this help. Um, So I think that that is something that, you know, in our community, again, I don't, I think the conversations are just starting now. And I think it's with our generation and the generations after us, but I think it's bridging that gap between our generation and the generations before us. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely noticed that because I have younger cousins and mm-hmm. I definitely feel like they're way more open about their emotions and their needs and their expectations on their own with their parents um, mm-hmm. and being more vocal about what, what their mental space needs. Um, and I think it's so important to keep that conversation going. And that's why I love Brown Girl Therapy so much <laughs> um, because it's a very good tool and it, and it almost gives them the, it gives them the wording. It gives them the proper wording to have that conversation with their parents or their loved ones um, to share how they may be feeling. So that's really Yeah. Good. And something that I'm like really passionate about trying to advocate, which is what I'm trying to do with Brown Girl Therapy. So I appreciate you saying that it, it's doing it is that again, it's really, you can't help yourself or really understand your own struggles if you're not able to identify them or articulate them. So a big part of like the goal of Brown Girl Therapy is to be able to be like, here are words on on what you are feeling. And here's, you know, because once you have the words for it, then it's so much easier to kind of navigate. Exactly, exactly. Like you mentioning grief, and now I'm feeling like, you know what, that is what I'm feeling right now. (laughs) It's not so much anxiety, it's more grief of things that I can, can't do or, you know, wish I could do. Um, So that's really great. Thank you for sharing that with us. So I've been following Brown Girl Therapy for about a year now. And Mm -hmm. I want to share one of my favorite uh, graphics with some of our listeners. So it was one that was explaining their expectations versus our reality. So you Mm -hmm. had shared two different graphs. And in one graph for their expectations, it's just one linear line going up. And for our reality, 
it is a bunch of um, troughs and peaks explaining our reality. So what it is for real. So for our expectations, there's things listed like, hey, okay, a child is born healthy, well-behaved, good grades, <laughs> great career, married a family-approved partner, <laughs> having kids, <laughs> never having any issues ever, and that makes me laugh so hard. And then, of course, taking care of our parents. And that's, you know, something, some things along this line are granted. And I, I get that. And then, of course, our reality where we are misunderstood. And then, of course, there's some support, some grief, acceptance, struggle, and then finally some self-awareness. All right. So my question is, do you feel like some of these expectations, quote unquote, are emphasized greater within South Asian communities? And why do you think that it's like that? Yeah, so this is something I've been thinking about a lot. And I, I actually, um, shocker, don't know if I have the words to really articulate um, my thoughts on this, but I will try. So I, I think, um, I don't think it's just the South Asian community. I do think it, if you were to compare the South Asian community with, let's say, the American um, culture and, you know, the mainstream culture here in America, then yes, it's definitely emphasized greater within the South Asian community. But I think that kind of, um, translates across all Eastern communities and especially um, immigrant communities, um, mm -hmm. if I'm being honest. I think, um, and, and I say immigrant communities because I can also only really speak personally to being a child of immigrants in a South Asian family. Um, and, you know, I was taught to, that there was an order of life, that there was very, very real expectations that I needed to meet to, for my parents to feel like, I was living the life that they expected of me. And I, I right. think, you know, that is all those things that you just mentioned, like marrying someone who they wanted me to marry, that they approved um, or chose, you know, more so. Getting that uh, very good education from a recognized university, potentially going to graduate school at a recognized university. Um, having kids before a certain age, having that career being financially stable, whether it was by myself or through my partner's income. Um, so there were all these things that were always expected of me. And I did not live an expected life. If I'm very honest, I didn't do well in school for a while. I didn't, you know, I have a creative career. So it's not like the traditional career. I married um, an American white man. I don't have kids yet. And I'm 31. Like all of these things that quote unquote would be a failure in the eyes of a lot of South Asian parents or Eastern Asian communities, but it's just a very, I'm living a very real life. People get divorced in our communities. People are infertile. People have issues and trauma and things that they deal with all the time. And I think in our community, these things are brushed under the rug. And it's like, don't talk about this out in public. Don't mention it to anyone else. We don't want anyone to know about it. We don't, it looks bad for us. It's, it's a, you know, it represents it's going to be a reflection of my parenting or our community or our family name or all of these things. Right. And I think that that's how I was taught. And so for my whole life up until recently, I was too scared to talk about the things that actually made me feel bad or the experiences I've had that actually were really hard. And so I think the whole point of this graph was to be like, you know what, <laughs> nothing goes to nothing goes as planned. Nothing, nothing in the world will go as planned. And I think that goes across all cultures and all, all countries and all um, communities. But I think especially in ours, it's very hard for immigrant parents to kind of relinquish that control 
and understand that a part of them moving to this country to potentially give us a better life and better opportunity and more more opportunity with that also came separate hardships and different things that we have to go through and more resources like therapy that we have access to that they did it and all of these things that maybe they weren't really considering when they chose to move here. Um, so I think navigating that kind of duality is where a lot of the child, the child of immigrant struggles come from. Um, and they're very different from the expectations our parents may have had for us. I think that's a really important topic. And I love that you highlight that uh, within your posts because that is part of your identity that you had realized a lot of your traumas can stem from because mm -hmm. you are a child of immigrant parents plus first generation in a whole different environment. Um, mm -hmm. So I want to actually share one of your posts, a lot of the things you had already mentioned, but there is a last few lines of this uh, post that I absolutely loved. And I want to share this post with some of our listeners. So it goes as follows. Immigrant parents want to do right by their kids, but some of them, like mine, were unprepared for the wide variety of life choices and lifestyles now available to their children, and it scares them. So they like to test their first-generation kids when they don't understand the choices they make. Are you sure you want to pursue that creative career? Are you sure you want to marry that person I didn't choose for you? Do you think that you should have kids by now, not later? I've had to explain to my parents that just because they don't understand something doesn't mean that it's wrong or bad. The moment they gave me the freedom and privileges they didn't necessarily have, they also offered me the chance to courageously live a different life than they did, and I took it. It often felt like I was unsupported, but I realize now they've understood life to be lived on one path, the path that has been tried and tested for maximum chance of security and comfort. Why wouldn't I? we opt for that? They moved to this country to make our lives easier, so they'll test us repeatedly. They may not understand, but they need to know we are going to be okay. So it's our duty to show our parents, however many times, that we are grateful, we are happy, and we will be okay. I love mm -hmm. that. The last few lines are just so hard hitting because yes, we, we do understand that this conversation may be difficult to understand on both perspectives, both from us understanding what our parents have gone through and why they push us, but also for them to understand what our perspective is. So how can we encourage this conversation and open this with our parents? Um, so it's important to understand your parents' perspective and where they come from, right? So in this post, I was trying to highlight, like you said, the, the fact that, you know, our immigrant parents came from a very different upbringing and they essentially broke generational cycles by moving to an entirely new country than mm -hmm. anyone before them had lived in. And then they're trying to, to still have some semblance of control in this new environment. Um, and that includes, you know, the way that they raise their children and what they expect of their children, but it just doesn't work like that, right? The puzzle piece doesn't fit when they're taking what they were, were expected of them in, let's say, India, and then bringing it here to America and having those very same expectations on their kids born in this country and raised in this country. Um, so I feel like for me personally, the way I started navigating this conversation with my parents and being open with them was 
you know, I wasn't always, my relationship with my parents wasn't always great. I was always really um, defensive. I was always uh, resentful. I was always a little angry with them that they didn't just get it and that they didn't understand that like I was born and raised here. So my life is different. And um, that's very unproductive. It wasn't until recently when I started to be able to put myself in their shoes and kind of think from their perspective and ask them, you know, be very curious about what life was like for them when they moved to this country, when I wanted to go to prom, what were they thinking? What were things that they were dealing with? So it was less about me and more about trying to understand their perspective that they were able, we were able to kind of meet each other in the middle. I mean, I think I'll always meet them a little bit more towards them, but I think that's my job and my responsibility as their child. Um, so I don't think it's easy for a lot of us, right? I think I feel very lucky that my parents have eventually been able to come around and understand where I come from and love my white husband and, you know, understand my career choices and support me and really encourage me. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that it's not like that for everyone, but I really think that, like I said in this post, it's important that if you really believe something is good for you or right for you or will make you happy, then you have to fight for it. Um, a lot of the times our immigrant parents are they want to, like I said, they want to have some, some semblance of control. So they want, and in order to do that, it's because they want to not lead us astray as their children. They want to make sure that they are setting us up for a really good life after they are gone. But that doesn't mean they know what that looks like. So just like I knew the person I wanted to marry, I had to fight for him and tell them that this was, this was what was going to make me happy for the, for my whole life. And it was only when I was able to like really make that clear to them that they came around and said, okay, like I, you know, I come around to this because it seems now that this is really what's going to make you happy. And that's all they want for us at the end of the day. Right. And I think that's important also to understand that uh, South Asian um, kids, um, they misunderstand that from parents because I know when I used to have conversations with my parents, I wanted to fully understand why they had certain expectations or rules or, you know, just as a household and in general for society. Um, and I didn't fully understand that because I did grow up in a very isolated town in northern British Columbia. So we didn't mm -hmm. have very many Indian people in general. So when I would go to school, I would see people live their life a certain way. And when I go home and it's a completely different environment, we struggled a lot with communicating with our parents about our life outside of the house for them to understand um, the things that we go through on, on a daily basis and socially as well. Um, so there were boundaries that were set that we were trying to push a bit to kind of uh, alleviate that, but it definitely took years of conversation. And, and I really appreciate them on their side to be open to listening to us. And I mm -hmm. think that that's the most important is that they also need to be listening um, to their kids. And for us, we need to be understanding their perspective and why uh, they may feel a certain way about certain things. Definitely. Um, and it goes without saying that it's, we're not expecting our parents to become different people, right? We just want them to listen and hear us and, and understand our experiences. And that's not to say that that doesn't come with its own struggles. My parents still, you know, sometimes have these ingra ingrained um, beliefs that I think are somewhat toxic from you know way back when and are very archaic in my eyes but i'm not expecting them to just forego everything they've ever believed or understood to be right in the world exactly. i just want them to understand where i'm coming from and why i feel differently and 
we've been able to have those really healthy conversations. It's not, I don't go into it being like, I need you to change. They don't go into it saying, I need you to change. It's just, here's how I feel. Here's how you feel. We can still love each other and understand that we, that I love that you're my parents and you've taught me X, Y, and Z, but I've also learned ABC from being in this country and growing up here. Absolutely. That agreeing to disagree is okay. It's okay Mm -hmm. to be that way. Thank you for sharing so much and so much perspective and experience and even your vulnerabilities. I think that's so important. How can our listeners connect with you? Yeah. So first I want to say thank you for having me. It was really awesome to talk about all of this and to share, you know, everything I've learned and have experienced myself, but also to be able to kind of give back to the community. So I really appreciate that. Um, If listeners want to connect with me, they can always follow me on um, Instagram. So they can follow my personal account, which is at Sahaj Kohli, or um, they can follow Brown Girl Therapy at Brown Girl Therapy. Um, And when you get to the Brown Girl Therapy Instagram page, there's a link in the bio for a newsletter that I send out once every two or three weeks, um, which provides resources, things around the internet internet that I curate um, for the community, but also you know, mental health resources and um, information on minority mental health. Yeah, and definitely you guys sign up for her newsletter because I just got the one from yesterday and it has a really cool uh, link to all the books that I had just been reading. (laughs) And there's some good (laughs) books in there. Um, So if you're an avid reader, definitely check those out. But definitely Brown Girl Therapy, good stuff. Thank you, Sahaj, for joining us today, and um, hopefully we will connect again soon. Good luck with all of your uh, endeavors, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. All right, guys. Thank you for joining us here today. Don't forget to follow our Instagram page at Manmukti, M-A-N-N-M-U-K-T-I. Subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, share it, and look out for our next episode. Bye, and have a lovely day.